Act 5. You're It. Scene 1. Monstrous Mash. Shentlepiece City on Tuscarora Mountain. Tuesday, Sext. Afternoon, 13th of June, 1284. Morrow of St. Gervais, Nordlandic Midsummer. At the reckless command of the enraged little cardinal, all the crusaders rush forward to attack the helpless wood elves who have not yet reached the safety of the dwarf tunnels or the gnome burrows. Even without the elaborate jewelry of a high elf, a wood elf's day-to-day getup still has enough linen fabrics, copper buckles, high-grade steel tools, and homemade finery to make looting their belongings a profitable business model for the rank-and-file crusaders. Moreover, elves always earn a good price on the slave market. Back at the cardinal's tent, Florence and her father run for their lives, or, in the case of her father, for his undeath. She mutters breathless curses upon the heresiarch who severely overestimated the Arkenstone's effectiveness in rendering her father invincible. It did not take long for the Inquisition's forces to prove themselves quite capable of dealing with the threat. Even the legendary Sword of Laban failed to make her the kind of super-warrior the heresiarch led her to believe she would become. As they retreat, her father's will revives little by little. Still, the active source stones inside her father's chest provide little protection against the gnome sling stones and the human silver arrows from the cardinal's elite guard. Her father tries but fails to reattach his right arm, severed with a silver blade. He runs close behind her but staggers around as if punched drunk from the turn undead prayers and the blessed crosses they have directed at him. As he runs, he does manage to position himself to absorb the missiles flying in at Florence. Thanks to his protection as a mobile meat shield, Florence only suffers a few minor flesh wounds on the way back to Shentlepiece City. Despite the torrents of arrows, crossbow bolts, and slingstones falling down upon her at every step. But her luck soon runs out. Several light-armored swashbucklers from the High Inquisitor's tent catch up to her before she reaches Thor's base with her father. They are armed with silver swords and know how to use them well. Very well. Unable to outpace them in the foot race... Florence desperately parries their blows with the Sword of Laban. Her father does his best to ward them off by flicking his chained hand at them, but his imprecise swings offer little relief. Her swordsmanship is simply not up to par, and she knows it will only take them a few more strokes to bypass her guard. But Florence has never put much stock in swordplay, a waste of time. Organization and planning, as far as she is concerned, will always win the day, and she has carefully laid out and rehearsed a plan for escape. The elevator operator dwarves have been keeping one elevator, reinforced with sturdy boards, dangling about ten feet above the battlefield, with a large brass bell buried upside down directly beneath it. The swashbucklers move to corner her, just as Florence hops down into the bell, with her father holding onto her tightly. He then uses the Arkenstone to flip the polarization of the lodestone in the amulet to repel metal as vehemently as possible. Kibler's lodestone magnetically propels them both upward out of the bell's skirt, like a railgun or a sorcery-charged blunderbuss. A dwarf elevator operator makes ready to reach out and grab them as they fly by, but their trajectory is so perfect that they both make a clean landing inside the elevator's platform without any help at all. Impressed, the dwarf compliments her and Eldrick, saying, Quite a bellhop, Mademoiselle Umpire. They are not safe yet. 
Crossbow bolts, longbow arrows, and slingstones come flying up at them. Florence does not want to wait around to test how long the elevator's improvised shell of maple wood planks will last against so many missiles. She gives him a terse reply. Okay, Bellhop, just get us out of here. The operator dwarves ply their muscle strength and quick hands to the pulleys. The elevator glides upward swiftly. Vampire Kibler continues to swat at slingstones and intercept arrows aimed at his daughter until they rise up beyond their range. Once they're at the top, the Heresiarch walks over to them, surrounded by his entourage of cultists and black flame fanatics. With triumph in his eyes, he curls his fists together and announces, Welcome back, Lord Vampire and my young apprentice, Florence. From here you will witness the final destruction of the Inquisition and the last of its pathetic crusades. Florence grabs her father's arm, still dangling from the silver chain, and says in the black tongue of Kaldor, What gives with this? My father is not as invincible as you promised. The High Inquisitors had a lot more tricks up their sleeves than you ever bothered to tell me about. I'm starting to doubt the Black Flame will do much good against this crusade. The Heresiarch ignores her doubts and says, Little combat tricks are nothing compared to the true power of the Black Flame. Behold! With a grandiose wave of his hand, the Heresiarch summons undead reinforcements. Out of the forest charge hundreds, nay, rather thousands of undead animals, big and small, woolly mammoths, cave bears, saber-toothed tigers, moose, deer, possums, rabbits, squirrels, chipmunks, field mice, and garden snakes. The stampede of undead animals crashes into the crusader front lines like gusts of hurricane winds. It flattens them, but does not completely destroy them. The crusaders desperately attack the undead animals, only to find themselves gored, clawed, bitten, gnawed, trampled, and butted by that monstrous fury. The valiant soldiers hack the undead animals to pieces, but only those appendages, severed by silver blades, stay severed. Those animals attacked by steel recompense themselves into strange new horrors. The duke's son, Sir William Penn the Younger, bravely chops the antlers off an undead antelope lunging toward him. At that moment, a scalped jackrabbit hops by and attaches the antlers to its own head. The undead jackalope harries the crusaders with such speed and precision with its antlers that it leaves a trail of death and destruction in its wake. The battle sages in the duke's employ conjure up ensorcelled tornadoes with their wind and water source stones to vacuum up the monsters while the battle mages whip around their magical wands, uttering every manner of incomprehensible magic incantations to locomutate the monsters away from the battlefield. But the vast number of undead animals overwhelms their endurance, and soon the front lines of crusaders are put to flight in a mad panic. Only the three orders of military monks keep their calm as they strive to devise a tactic to clear these abominations of nature away. The Knights Templar are renowned for their prowess with weapons, and use blessed maces and silver swords combined with brute force to break the forward momentum of the monstrous onslaught. True to their untarnished military fame, the Templars follow Brother Jack de Molay into the jaws of hell and pass through unharmed. The Knights Hospitaller, the pious warrior monks of compassion, add prayers and holy invocations to their attack. They protect not only the Crusaders, but also, and especially, the innocent, unarmed wood elf refugees. Though bound by their vows to obey the High Inquisitor, they conscientiously object to war crimes. Peace and healing follow wherever they go. 
For all the hard work and the valuable tactical achievements of the other military orders, it is the Knights Paladin who save the day. Their temperate lifestyle allows them to heroically wade their way into the worst of the fighting. Armed with prayer and fasting according to the Lord's command, they burst through the festering horde of monsters with righteous fury in their eyes. The human paladins ride war horses, the dwarf paladins ride war donkeys, and the gnome paladins ride war ponies. They all couch their holy lances and hone in on the largest and most ferocious monsters before them. When their lances break, they pull out holy water and blessed crucifixes, silver blades and relic-filled maces, staves carved with saints' effigies, and shields painted with icons. Though surrounded by unnatural beasts that outnumber them a hundred to one, they cast themselves into the fray fearlessly. Still, the odds are so dismal that it would take a miracle for them to succeed. And yet, somehow, these holy warriors dish out just such miracles with sugar and spice. After an hour of brave strokes, fervent prayers, and mighty miracles, they demolish and scatter the frenzied undead before them. Body part after body part, slabs of meat, dismembered limbs, splattered organs, gristle and bone twitch and ooze across the forest floor. A horrid sight, but a threat no more. Having retreated back to their camp, the bloodied crusaders stand together, huddling against each other and trembling like children under a blanket, having just come inside after being caught in a thunderstorm. Double Debt to Heaven The Duke of Philadelphia can almost hear all the coins tumbling out of his coffers while picturing for himself a protracted siege. He hopes they can give it one last hurrah and says, We still have the element of surprise. If we press our advantage... Whoa, 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 interrupts Brother Radisson, the commander-elect of the Knights Hospitaller. The elves have been preparing for this attack long before you even summoned us. There is no surprise here, and we have no advantage. We are getting picked off like mosquitoes in a flock of bats. Uh-oh. What? The elect Radisson points to the skies. Holy bat guano! Look up there! Along the edge of Thor's base, Vampire Kibler leads the other notables and high elf leaders whom he has forced to undergo transmogrification into the undead state. Among their ranks is the enthralled revenant Gandorf Mithranderson, the unwilling but subservient Major League's vampire. Wearing long, black capes as a sort of primitive parachute, they throw themselves off Thor's base one after another. Riding next to Duke William Penn of Philadelphia, the rogue adventurer Ariel, whose real name is Lady Philippa, the Duke's daughter, sees their black capes flutter as they come flying down and turns to the hospitaler knight. Look up there! Are they sending undead bats to attack us? They look too big to be ordinary bats. They're like bat... men. The elect Radisson follows her finger, and the undead umpires come quickly into view. Holy Adam laid to rest west of paradise. Those aren't bats. They've got more undead elf vampires. The first to crash to the ground, Vampire Kibler's flattened body billows out and upward like a tube-man sky dancer at a luxury car dealership. Likewise, as if reinflated by the electric fans of their own willpower, the other sky-fallen vampires uncrumple their limbs to a macabre rhythm. Look, they're dancing! The crusaders stand around mesmerized, watching the pulverized vampires wriggle and churn as if featured artists in some horrific ballet. 
No sooner do they recompose themselves than the vampires smash, rip, fling, and batter the crusaders with no mercy. They spin them around, pound them down, and toss them up in the air like a pizza man kneading thin crust pizza dough. Suddenly, Ariel, alias Lady Philippa, calls up her party of adventurers. Monsignor Oscar Mayer charges to the rescue. His war mallet comes down with such force that it knocks one vampire's right arm clean out of its shoulder socket. He then chants a turn-undead prayer that immediately drains the battle frenzy out of another vampire. Ariel wedges herself between two vampires and severs a left arm off the first and a right arm off the second with her silver knives. Before the one-armed vampires can retaliate, Willis chops off the legs of the first with his long sword while Whoopi taps his magic while Whoopi taps his magic wand on the second's knees to make them disappear, humming out his magic words, Akitang Zuboing. Hard behind Ariel's party rides a detachment of Knight's Paladin. They are armed with clay bombs filled with holy water, exorcism oils, and blessed salts. They foist these sacred petards on the vampires and neutralize their ferocity. Even from afar, Vampire Kibler senses the strength of this group's holiness. His bloodlust has not been slaked, but he knows that another assault by the Knight's Paladin will annihilate his undead thralls. He simply does not have enough vampires to put up a fight against such a holy foe. Far too few elves volunteered to undergo transmogrification. He uses the black tongue of Kaldor to order his thralls to retreat from the battle. Next time, he will return with a massive undead elf army. It will take time, patience, and most of all, a brilliant lie to convince enough high elves in the power structure to force transmogrification upon the citizens of Shentlepea City, whether their private, individual consciences agree to it or not. Not far away, Vampire Gandorf seethes with loathing as he watches Vampire Kibler run away. His heart burns to take revenge for his death and political demise, but his mind allows him no respite except to obey Vampire Kibler's commands. Vampire Gandorf retreats, and the other vampires follow close behind. Seeing the vampires retreating, Ariel shouts to the surviving crusaders, Fall back to the camps! They unanimously follow her. <laughs>